coming up on Chopper's Politics. As much as people try to be as COVID compliant as possible, you're also trying to run the country and people kind of brush up against each other, essentially. Um, Quite hard if you're Matt Hancock. Hello and welcome to the Red Lion Pub in the heart of Westminster. I'm Christopher Hope, chopper to my pals, associate editor for politics at the Daily Telegraph. And this is Chopper's Politics Podcast. Well, it's been another topsy-turvy week in Westminster, with Partygate back and Boris Johnson once again in the news. Alongside concerns too, among the very rich, about Labour's plans for the wealthy. So this week we'll be talking to Liam Byrne, a former Labour Chief Secretary to the Treasury about wealth and inequality, and what a Labour government might do about it. Oh, and a certain note about there being no money left. Remember that? And Cleo Watson, a former Deputy Chief of Staff to Boris Johnson, who lived through the Partygate saga along with other Tory government dramas. She'll be here to discuss her new book, Whips, and a little lid on what it's really like working with Dominic Cummings. But first, immigration. It's an issue which drove so many people to vote to leave the European Union before the 2016 referendum. And it's back in the news and rising as an issue amongst voters. And this week, the government announced a record 606,000 people net came to the UK last year. With me to discuss those figures is Alp Mehmet, chairman of Migration Watch. Alp, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. You've come here bearing two pieces of paper because you've been analysing the ONS net migration stats out just a few moments ago. What the ONS say is that last year, 2022, more than 606,000 more people came to the UK than left. That's the net figure. Why is it so high? Well, firstly, I might add that had they been working on the method with the methodology that they uh, used last time round and previously, we'd be talking about a lot more than 606,000. Really? Yes, indeed. Um, How they, high do you think under the old counting method? Um, I think probably around 750,000 at least, Goodness. If, if not more. Uh, what they've done is effectively excluded certain people that they were including previously. But I also think that there's been a little bit of government jiggery-pokery going on, okay. frankly. Let's, dig, let's dig into that number then. Why and where and how? Th- there's been some news management going on. I mean, you, you'll note that the government has either encouraged people to think that it was going to be 800,000 to a million... And frankly, this year, it may be, who knows, because we're talking about 2002. 2022. What is happening now is, I'm sure, a lot higher than previously. But that aside, the government gave the impression that they were expecting this high number. To be honest, I was a government press officer many years ago, and I know how it works. What they did was have that million figure banded around so that now whoa here we are 606,000 isn't that wonderful well it isn't frankly I'm really still astonished that anyone should be uh, suggesting that a net migration figure of 606,000 is in any way a good thing it isn't okay before you dig into that number why could it have been 750,000 under the old counting method. Why is that? Well, still looking at it, but it seems that they've excluded 
And those, for example, who were here but intended to leave, um, they've suddenly taken those out saying, well, you know... We, there's well, no intending to leave but didn't leave, is that the point? Well, that, that is the point. They didn't leave. There are, so in um, the old days, those, those numbers were counted, were they up? So the Office for National Statistics is saying, and, and frankly, we are asking them, what exactly is this and why have you done it? Um, looking at the figures ourselves, we think that under the old system it was probably around 743,000. Really? Uh, but it may be higher, maybe lower, I don't know. This was just a cursory... I mean, yeah. the, the, as you know, the figures that come out, they're, they're buried in, in a tome I know. of statistics. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And it's very good to have you even on with such, such short notice. The top lines are, though, that there's a lot of people arriving from Ukraine, 114,000, 52,000 people from Hong Kong, and 76,000 asylum seekers. Now, if you take out Ukraine and Hong Kong, that's, you know, near 100, 165, 170,000 people who won't be, won't be long-term on that list. And that brings the number down to a more manageable 450,000. Not manageable at all, Well, that's Chris. still too much I'm afraid world. it's way, way too much. Look, over 20 years when net migration averaged 245,000 annually. And that's the figure going out 10 years hence, isn't it, from the OBR? Yeah, and that's the figure going out from the OBR. We had a population increase of 8 million. Nearly 7 million of that, or 85%, was due to immigration, migrants and the children of migrants. So you, you, you can't say that 400,000, 600,000 a year, 600, a year uh, net migration. There are also those who are saying, well, we should really be looking at other things. We don't need to include students. And net migration is the wrong metric. Well, it isn't. It's absolutely the right metric because it's on that figure that demographers like Professor David Coleman, who has been with Migration Watch for many years, those sort of individuals are the ones who work out the projections. What is population going to be based on well, this? Should we not maybe think, isn't it great that people want to come here in large numbers? Is that a tribute to this country, our generosity, our openness to, to people? Well, yes. We've never turned people who've had a right to come here, those people who were born here but of a different ethnicity. Everyone is... Look, I'm a first-generation, Mike. You're from from what is now Northern Cyprus. You came here in the 50s. Indeed. First generation, though, and you were welcome here. I'm a first generation. I arrived not being able to speak English. I went to a school in the East End of London. Some might argue that I even joined the establishment. Um, (laughs) um, Well, you were... because you were a UK ambassador to Iceland, you were a senior figure in the Foreign Office. Why do you think then these numbers are tolerated by the people who run this country, the people in charge of the border gates in, in our airports and ports? I think there are those who genuinely believe that there should be no borders. There are those who believe that the, the mix, the multiculturalism, the, the numbers of people coming in, as you say, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that uh, something to be welcomed? Well, yes, but what limits? 
what numbers? What on earth are we going to do about housing people, about finding GPs for them, about having the right number of schools and teachers for their children? So it's a worry about stress on public services, and that may be why immigration is now the third most important issue for voters yes, in, poll- in polling. And, and rising. And, and rising. Um, frankly, it's also why 60% of people are there about say that immigration has been too high and needs to be reduced. I just, just I look at the Nigel Farage that appeared on the BBC Newsnight's programme last week, ITV's Peston programme last night. These are the main political outlets for him. I just wonder what's going on. I just wonder whether we're going back to the early 2010s in terms of the politics and whether Farage might try and start doing do things on immigration as the way he did with UKIP. It, it isn't just Farage, frankly. There's a lot of people now who are genuinely concerned. Even the Labour Party. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, they're saying the sort of things now that I've been asking the government to take on for years. Like what? Like, for example, the points-based system. Just a small, small example, which was, you'll recall, introduced in order to control and reduce immigration. We were told that by Boris in 2019 over and over again. Nonsense. I was saying at the time, and even before, that a loose points-based system will only lead to more people coming here. Not fewer people but the coming, po- the but the point of the points-based system is, is it can be tweaked by the people in charge of the country to reduce or increase immigration. And what is the truth of it is that Boris Johnson was relaxed about net migration. He was in charge for three-quarters of the period we're talking about. He let the numbers in. Well, from, from what I hear... And he fought on the on the Vote Leave campaign. Well, indeed. But uh, they had nothing to do with Vote Leave. This, no. this was post vote leave yeah. when they're but saying taking yeah, back control we're going to point. take back control we're going to uh, get brexit done linking the two referring to the australian points based system our system is nothing like the australian system there Not are no limits means. in the way that the australians have limits and and boris you quotas, misled you? people mm. boris misled people because as you say more than relaxed, he was actually in favour of high migration. So there are choices to be made here by politicians, and they could make it harder to come here for migrants, couldn't they? But they're not. Is that, and what would you do if Alp Mehmet were, in prime, were Prime Minister today? Well, what I would, would certainly do? tighten the points-based system. I would do what the government has announced and say no dependence for overseas students coming here ostensibly to do master's degrees. Yeah, right. Um, well, they probably are. But, but well, let's not. Let's not poo-poo the idea. They. I'm not suggesting that they're not. But what sort of master's degrees okay. are they doing? Where are they doing it? What are they qualifying? So greater it? scrutiny of those of the student numbers coming greater in and their families. Scru- greater scrutiny of those coming in, not just for postgraduate studies, but for undergraduate studies. Frankly. All around Africa, uh, the subcontinent, Indian subcontinent, you've got agents. You've got agents who are saying, I'll get you to the UK. You can study there and stay to work. 
that's what they're selling. They're selling so a job. Point space, students, and what else? Nothing else? Well, with the families, for example, I think the earnings thresholds for those who are being brought here, joining um, other members of their family as, as dependents, I mean, that's pitifully low. Mm. Um, increase that. Increase I mean, that. Just finally, is the, is the kind of nervousness about immigration and being tough on it anything to do with claims that it's racist? to try and stop people coming here. It's a racist policy. That's what the left would say. And you, you've, you've had this a well, lot. Well, you know, funny enough, I was talking to a, a Labour politician today and they were, I mean, behind their hands, they're saying, of course, this is right. One of them even pointed to what Bernie Sanders is saying in... in what, what's right, what's right? Bernie, the, the fact that we need to bring down immigration, to reduce immigration. Yes, of course. And they are, in fact, advocating the sort of things, as I say, that we've been calling for for a long time. So, Al Mehmet, just finally, how is Migration Watch going to put the pressure up on the government over migration? For years, we've been saying to them, this is a sensible thing to do. This is what people want. Well, a lot of those people who are asking for it, frankly, don't have a voice or are ignored. What I'm going to do is launch a petition a campaign, and it's going to be a, a continuous campaign over the coming months where we're going to invite people to sign up to our petition, calling on the government to cut immigration and cut it by a lot. We believe to a fewer than 100,000 a year. Which is what uh, Swell of Raven told me on this podcast in October. That's our ambition. Thank you for joining us this week. Alp Mehmet on Chopper's Police Podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Alf Mehmet, thank you. Now, it's been a big week for news on Labour's plans for the economy, with Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves setting out her business model for Britain in a speech in America. And one senior Labour MP who's doing some serious thinking about inequality and what the next Labour government might do about that is Liam Byrne, the MP for Hodge Hill and a former senior Treasury Minister. Liam Byrne, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Liam Byrne, Labour MP, former Labour Cabinet Minister and Chairman of the All-Party Group on Inclusive Growth. Welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you for having me on. Great to have you on. First time in the Red Lamp pub? There's a family myth, actually, that my great-uncle used to run this place in the 50s. No! They were Irish publicans. Yeah, and they ran this place for a little bit, I think, before moving on to the Churchill Arms on the Pimlico. Did they? So <laughs> relations grew up here, possibly. Yeah. Pulled pints for Churchill. Yeah, well, I don't know. God, let's imagine that. Pints of champagne for Churchill. It's too maybe. amazing. Yeah. Now, you're writing a book, Liam Byrne. What's it yeah. called? So it's The Inequality of Wealth, Why It Matters and How We Fix It. And it's, if there's a big idea, I suppose, at the heart of it, it's that the old ideal of the wealth-owning democracy is, is pretty much dead in this country. So, you know, both Mrs. Thatcher on the right, but also philosophers on the left, we both have both said, look... Wealth-owning democracy is key to a country where freedom flourishes. But, you know, the truth is that since 2010, the top 1% in the UK have multiplied their wealth by about 31 times everybody else. And, of course, what now has transpired from our polling that we published on Monday is that 40% of people in Britain now think the top 1% have more power than governments. Wow. That's been a huge reversal. Five years ago when we ran that question, most people said governments are the most powerful. Governments call the shots. Now people think it's the they super rich. pay for lawyers. I mean, are they watching too much succession? Are I think, they, you know, succession, above deck, below deck, Dallas housewives, you know, you, you, yeah. you name it. You know, our media is now just sort of full of stories about the super rich behaving badly. Um, yeah. 
I, and is, is, it, is it real though? They are held to account. Harvey Weinstein and others are, are jailed. Yeah, but I think most people worry now that the super rich live in a different world. But I think what troubles people more is how do they build wealth and assets yeah. in this kind of economy? And I guess if there's a big economic idea in the yes. book, it's that our, our economy is now has been transformed that no one's noticed. So back in the 1970s, the wealth to wages relationship was about four to one. So the price of assets in Britain was about four times national wages. Now it's 10 to one. So easy money, a trillion pounds worth of quantitative easing. It now means the price of assets are 10 times the average national wages. So if you if you don't own assets today... It's very hard to get It's them. really hard to ever get them. Is that why people think that there's some wealth taxes coming this way if Labour win the election? Next? So I think there has got to be a debate about fair taxes. So Sunday Times Rich List came I, out at the weekend. <laughs> very, well, you're rebranding taxes as fair taxes. Well, look at it like this. So look, Richie Sunak's publishes tax return. That's good. Income of about two million. He's paying 21% tax on that. Now, at a time when one in five people are now paying top-rate tax, you know, of over 40%, so Nurses, including doctors. teachers, doctors, senior police officers... We never officers, meant to play it, were they? Never, never. We never went to play it. And actually, you know, this is something that Telegraph has really taken aim at, I think. You know, we do now have the highest peacetime tax yeah. burden in our it's history. It's called fiscal drag, isn't it? It's called fiscal drag. When you've got one in five taxpayers now on top-rate tax, but you've got a prime minister earning two million quid and paying half that rate of tax, I think you've got to sit back and say, hang on a minute. Isn't it time to restore fairness to the tax system? So the story on the front page of the Telegraph on, on Thursday morning reporting that it says Labour's tax raids could cost Britain more than £350 million a year because the wealthy would flee the country. Is that not a risk from this kind of talk of fair taxation? I think, I think you've got to be alive to that. But look, you know, when you've got groups like this new group, Patriotic Millionaires, popping up and saying, it's a group of people, I don't know if you come across them. A group I have, of people actually. Who sort of say, look, we're, we're really successful, you know, we've done well, we've been really fortunate in life, yeah. but do you know what? Actually, we ought to be chipping in a little bit more. And so the question is always in Britain, is, is, is what's fair? And, and if you've got someone on two million paying half the tax rate of a senior nurse or a senior teacher, I think most people in Britain sort of think, hang on a minute. Is it time then to lift lift the tax on capital to the same as tax on wealth? From 20% to 40%, for example. So there's a load of ideas in the mix. So, you know, some people argue that you've got to equalise tax on dividends if you take your money from capital income. You know, there are some on the Jeremy had going towards that last last November. He did, and of course, you know, it was so radical, it was the policy of Nigel Lawson. You know, Nigel Lawson equalised tax rates on capital gains and um, and, on, and on income. So he called, think, it, he called it unearned wealth then. He called it unearned wealth, yeah. And he apologised exactly. for that in January because late the Tory yeah. piece I speak to went bananas because they yeah. saw that as a dog whistle. Yeah, yeah. And but, you, heard, you heard that too, didn't you? And that's a real, uh, that, was a, that was a kind of wow moment. Yeah, slightly. and you've got, you've got to be kind of really careful about this and you've got to make sure you don't damage enterprise. I, I'm an unusual yeah, Labour MP. Yeah. You know, I went to Harvard Business School on a Fulbright scholarship and started a dot-com when I got back. You know, and I firmly believe that you've got to have incentives for entrepreneurs to invest. I even wrote a book about a history of yep, you British capitalism told through 10 entrepreneurs. Well, that's in, because in you Britain. are definitely on the new Labour wing of the Labour Party, <laughs> not on the Corbynista wing. That's, but, 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 that, but, that's true. You know what I mean? You, you, but, from the, but I think, you know, what... What New Labour got right is a diagnosis of the country, and now the diagnosis has got to be different. You know, the the economy has changed fundamentally, and the question has got to be: Look, how do you create a wealth-only democracy today, where wealth and opportunity are fairly shared? We're not in the right place there, and we've got to make some changes. And is, is this getting a good listen from the Labour front bench? We see Rachel Reeves in America making noise this week. 
Yeah, I think Rachel's got some big things right. No, so you know the point that she's making, I think, is that look, things have changed a lot since the Berlin Wall came down, and you know we've spent. 30 years driving out all the inefficiencies in supply chains but we drove out the resilience yeah. too now there's national security virus you've got to have a green transition and crucially you've got to improve Britain's productivity so you've got to transform investment and innovation and that means the state has got to take a bit of a role you've got your book coming out in January next year yeah. which, which I wonder whether might be the tome that drives economic <laughs> policy in the next Labour government let's put it let's part that thought there let's say it early on this podcast and you developed an idea called the Mead Principle briefly what is that so basically the, the the Mead Principle is the notion that you've got to basically share capital and share the returns on capital and there's a, there's a few different ways of doing that so both on left and right there are new ideas about sovereign wealth funds for example and that gives people without much a chance to actually share in higher rates of return um, Norway being a case in point. Norway's a really good example. But, you know, people like John Penrose and the Conservative Party have made this case, as well as the IPPR. So I think there's support for both left and right there. But the, the key thing is you've got to give people assets and wealth. because that's and fair only, access to those. And things. fair access to those, because that's the only way they can share in the rising prosperity How of the country. How do you do that without taking, taking money away from this tiny 1% of very, very rich people and spreading it without creating this flight of capital as described in the Telegraph? Well, I think you've, you've got to share the way that wealth is generated across the country. So at the moment, most wealth is generated in London and the South East. So actually creating stronger economies in the regions is, is one yes. first important Level, step. It's called levelling up, another language. Used to be called levelling up. I don't know if that's still on vogue now. <laughs> um, you know, second, creating things like national wealth funds are important because it gives people a share in the wealth of the nation as it grows. But third, there's a big idea in the book, which is about universal basic capital. So how do you actually make it easier for people to get their foot on the housing ladder? How do you make it easier for people to pay down their student debt how do you make it easier for people to save up for a pension is that grants big grants no it it is about equalizing some of the tax treatment so at the moment a lot of the tax treatment for savings goes to those on over a hundred thousand lion's share of tax treatment is skewed towards those who've already got something and of course what that means is for those who have very very little actually you know they're they're dealing with scraps. We have ISAs, don't we? So 15, 15 grand a year or so. Yeah, um, we've got ISAs. But if you look at some of the things that Joe Biden has done, you know, things like help to buy loans are now much more widely spread in America than they are, say, for example, here. David Willits had a great idea, actually, which is about giving young people a dividend when they get to 25 to help them get a kickstart in life. So there's lots of ideas in the mix, and the book tries to kind of bring it all together in a bit of a system. Now, I've read part of the first chapter of your book, very kindly shared with me, pre-publication. Pre-edit, I should say. Pre-edit. It's a very good book. (laughs) Even even pre-edit, I would say, it's a good read. Um, You do talk, don't you, about this letter, which is brandished. I'm so sorry to bring it back. It was 13 years ago. Uh, It is in the Tory party chairman, Greg Hans's pocket, because he produced it for me on the election trail and he pulled this it's obviously a copy of a letter that he wrote as chief secretary saying, I'm afraid there is no money. And that's not nice for you. No, but I mean, look, I mean, first things first, there is gallows humour in Go on. Westminster, as you know. It's an old tradition that dates back to, to Churchill and, well, what and, is and writing, Reginald Morden, writing that leaving note, basically. As the chief to, secretary of Treasury. To the successor. Um, but, you know, the truth is that some things are just not, uh, are best not written down. Uh, <laughs> and I shouldn't have written that note, and I'm deeply sorry that I did. I suppose the irony is that I was the fiscal hawking government, you know, at the time, because if you think about the financial crash, the economy yeah. just had a heart attack. So once we'd done the CPR, we had to do the plan to, to plug the gap. And I was the guy well, who had CPR to put again, that, that was the Well, just we had to kickstart the financial system That's back right. again because uh, tax receipts have fallen off a cliff. 
And I was the guy who then had to basically figure out how to make the savings. So, you know, we had a plan to halve the deficit in four years, get debt falling by 2016. It was about £78 billion worth of measures, £21 billion from growth, yeah. £57 billion from... And you're writing thank you letters to civil servants. Yeah, Thanks I was. Do you know, work. I was... Exactly, I was writing and a load of thank you notes to it, the people who helped context, put this plan together, and I just thought, yeah. Because there's a history of these letters, as you described, don't you? When I think one, but the problem Churchill for, wrote one. Churchill wrote one. Reginald Maudlin one wrote one. To Jim Callahan, good luck, old cock. Sorry to leave him such a mess. I mean, it, it, it is gallows humour. It's not. It's not. It's one of the hardest jobs in government. You're doing the kind of the workings below the line. You're, you're getting no glory for it. You're trying to cut things and save money where you can. Yeah, and I just figured out how to save fifty-seven billion quid. You know, nineteen billion in tax. Uh, 20 billion in efficiencies across departments, 18 billion in capital spending yeah. efficiencies, you know, and that was, that had been really quite hard work. And of course, yeah. George Osborne said he'd go further, <laughs> but then put the economy in the slow lane, and so it actually didn't improve on the plan that we no. left in place. But um, that letter, though, hasn't brought good luck to people, has it, Liam Burr? No. David Laws obviously was the first one to flourish it and then was suspended in an expenses crisis a few days later, lost his seat when David Cameron came to the constituency and waved the note around. Cameron and Osborne obviously tried to use it and then lost. And, of course, Greg Hands used it and lost over a 1,000 council seats. So I think the mistake... <laughs> it's, like, it's like the black spot. It's like the curse of Tutankhamun, isn't it? So I think the mistake Mr. Hands is perhaps making at the moment is it's, it is actually the cardinal sin in British politics, which is to treat the British public like fools. So the note is not a kind of lead shield that you can use to stop people seeing into the Tory economic record, you know. These guys, they have put over a trillion pounds extra on the national credit card, 80% of that before COVID, worst living standard rise since the 1950s, highest peacetime tax burden, 5 million people... There, is, there is a war on, there is COVID on, I mean, in their defence. Yeah, but 80% of that debt rise came before COVID. People aren't stupid, and so they have got some really tough things going on in their lives, and so when they see Mr Hands play whataboutism, they're just not impressed. Does a bit of you, little bit of you die every time it's pulled out? Yeah. Yeah, because it was a stupid thing to do. Um, people it's in a brutal this country, game, though, your game, isn't it? It is a brutal game, and people in this country aren't, aren't stupid, actually. They do know what's going on, and they're just not impressed with sort of distraction politics. It does now provoke a national eye roll, I think. Listen, Liam Byrne, best of luck with your book. It sounds fascinating. I think it will become a, an interesting read as the country gets ready for maybe a change of government next year if the polls are as they say they are. But of course, the Tories think they can win as well, so let's see. Thanks for having me on. Liam Byrne there. Right, do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, we'll be hearing from a former Boris Johnson aide-turned-novelist on why there's ample opportunity for illegal sexual liaisons in Parliament. You won't want to miss that. Right after this. Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse... Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. (laughs) Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this, and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode.
Now, the world of Westminster is often known for scandals, bonking and power grabs, and a new book tries to capture all of those moments and more. And apparently, it's a work of fiction. Clear Watson is the author of Whips, billed by its publicist as a cross between Fifty Shades of Grey meeting House of Cards. She joins me now in the bowels of the Red Lion pub to chat about whether truth really is stranger than fiction. Cleo Watson, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thanks for having me. You're looking nervous. You're in the Red Lion Party <laughs> with mates. What are you talking about? <laughs> You've got a new book out this week called Whips. The photograph looks a little bit like one of those old Jilly Cooper front pages from the 80s that we probably grew up with. Rivals and Deliberately riders. so, yeah. Deliberately so, with a red stiletto and, and a tie hanging off it. But what's your book about? Is, so, it, about, is it boring about, boring about one about politics? You know, boring book politics well i mean i couldn't possibly say if those sort of heavy non-fiction tomes are boring or not but this <laughs> definitely isn't that it's actually although it's kind of set within the staging of politics downey street and parliament and so on it's actually about three young women who have kind of come into the lobby into parliament as a researcher and as a special advisor in downey street and, and they're all trying to kind of navigate this obviously very strange world Quite a male um, world. Quite a male world, although there are plenty of women around and there are certainly plenty in this book. And I think quite a big theme, and maybe this is how you know it's fiction, is that the women kind of end up coming out on top. Good. Which isn't always <laughs> the <laughs> no. case, I'm afraid. I mean, sadly that is fiction, but maybe it happens to happen more often. Is it, is it a bonk buster, to use the 80s of vernacular? Because <laughs> Julia Cooper wrote bonk busters, didn't she? <laughs> She did, yeah. I mean, there's sex in it, for sure. Yes. But I think there's quite a big difference between writing about sex and writing about intimacy. Yes, of course. And this is very much on the kind of side Transactional of... Transactional sex. No, no not so much, but it's more of sort of uh, watching a sex scene with your parents on telly, that kind <laughs> yeah. of cringe factor, I guess. And so I, I kind of... It's obviously about MPs, and so I'm trying to kind of bring the reader in on the joke, I suppose. Yes, I note at the end in the acknowledgements you say that you'll you'll be sending a copy of this to your family and friends edited. Yes, it'll be empty. <laughs> <laughs> a page well, book. And how do you life visit? You've you've been an observer. We'll come to that in a minute of Boris Johnson's time in government. Um, there's great descriptions there of checkers, which few of us have seen, but you've been there before. Are those accurate? So I think the, there's always been a lot of speculation about which character is based on real people and that kind of thing. It, it is a work of fiction, yeah. and although these are kind of the buildings exist, though. you mentioned exactly the building and the staging. I think is absolutely an insider's account. It's a real fly on the wall account, and arguably maybe that's the difference between this and some of the non-fiction stuff is that I've actually been in the room for it. Yeah. Ironically, you're in the room of wrote fiction, yeah. whereas people <laughs> have written tr- the, the non-fiction that well, they were weren't in the room. Well, they get a lot Why of first-hand both- accounts, <laughs> I guess. But I, I honestly, I, I don't think you could. I, I don't think I, I would feel that comfortable writing non-fiction about the last few years. It takes a long time to process. get over it. And, and this is deliberately, you know, I'm sure I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess that your listeners are pretty politically engaged. Yes, and this is a kind of relaxing holiday read. It's the sort of, wait. after reading your kind of Seldons and Shipmans, this is a, you know, comfort yeah. food for the brain. Can readers read this and go, oh, that may have happened? I deliberately have not done that, but it is to give you a sense of how it felt. So it's definitely drawn off how certain situations felt. But I've deliberately tried not to, you know, include anything that did actually happen. In fact, one of my problems has been I had to take a load of stuff out that did end up happening. Well, I was going to ask that. Uh, <laughs> has the cabinet office read it? Uh, Have we submitted it? They don't them? need to because it's fiction. Oh. They they understand it. In, they only read non-fiction. Is that right? That's right. So yeah. you got around it. So Nadine Dorries' book 
out this autumn about the alleged plot to bring down Boris Johnson is a work of fiction, so it can go in without any kind of... I guess, I mean... That, fiddling from the They panels. don't deal with libel, of course, so I don't know if there's, there's <laughs> different lawsuits coming. But, yeah, it's, it's, I, I definitely have tried to skirt around real stuff that's happened. But yeah. within the kind of expanse of anything that's happened around... SW1. When I originally wrote this a couple of years ago, I thought, oh, this is, you know, this is really extreme satire. And now it all feels a bit familiar. Um, so you wrote it when you were in, in office? No, no, no. I, so I left office at the end of 2020. So, oh, God. yeah, I time know. Flies. Coming up mean, three years. I've gone grey in that time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, but all kinds of stuff ended up happening that I then took out of the boat. There's an, obviously, we've had an MP in the Commons watching porn. Yes. Um, I, I actually have a kind of character written in who is a former prime minister and and without really thinking about it obviously that's what Boris Johnson has become but at the time I wrote that character in everyone was saying 10 more years and because um, the female the PM is a woman in your book of course and that was we had a couple of those uh, all three of them now we We had Tory party nothing in Labour yet you do say there that you you thank the civil servants who have the hottest gossip out there yeah what's the best bit of gossip didn't make the book I th- I think that people underestimate characters like the protection officers, gatekeepers on the doors. Yeah, they see it all. all. That they see they've seen everything. Those guys and they've been around for a really long time, so they kind of remember everything back. So be, be nice honest, to doorkeepers, be nice so, to police. <laughs> exactly. Be, well, and as 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 various cabinets have found, be polite to everybody. Of course. Um, but anyway, in all of life, that's true, right? Yes, that's very true. I mean, there's some stuff that that I've been kind of hinted at that is essentially unprintable um but maybe maybe for book two maybe (laughs) what it's only 10 30 in the morning (laughs) (laughs) um yeah well you know yeah so it didn't make it in the book you can't say what the best bit of gossip is didn't appear not really and this is a bit like being told to tell your best joke when you're just totally put on the spot and i can't think think of anything but well you'll you'll have to wait for book two what i think is good about the book is that um what i find so annoying about anything political in fiction is when it's wrong i can't bear it because that wouldn't happen that isn't there that's not the house of commons it drives me mad and i can't it becomes unwatchable after half an hour if you're watching tv the books are a bit easier but even when process goes wrong as it has in some fiction books i just go mad i think oh god so you can't do that you'll be right won't you throughout of course. I'll be you, Julia Watson. <laughs> I'll course. send you a text. I mean, I, I, I did get a lot of advice from people who really understand trickier process matters and yeah. stuff like that. The, the bit I really didn't know anything about, though, and and still don't, is how the lobby works. And no. I have a character that joins the lobby. As a yes, as one of the person. three characters is, is a lobby journalist. Exactly. And so you rely on kind of anecdotes and stories, but... I suspect, in in the same way that it's very difficult for yes. you guys to really know what it's like, yes. you know, inside the prime minister's office. I don't know what it's, well, it's like. It's called the I, I see. I always call it the iceberg. Yeah. So we see that we see the tip of the iceberg, and you see everything under the water where the real stuff's happening. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And one of my bits of advice to people starting out is: you think you want to be in the room. Sometimes it's just much nicer not being (laughs) being ignorant. Not to know. (laughs) That's how the survivor gets through it all. (laughs) I'm going to ask you about Dominic Cummings. I mean, you're often, really, you're known to us um, in the lobby as the person who arrived with Dominic Cummings at work. Yeah. You'd be photographed. (laughs) I mean, you're more than that. Clearly, you're deputy deputy (laughs) of staff, but visibly you were seen, weren't you? Mm. Walking in, walking out. So you got to know him quite well. What, What was he like? What's he like? Um, well, the, just to, the the reason we would come in together is because we, we live a street over yes. from each other. So, so you've got a cabin very, together very at green, all. Very green, saving on the environment. And 
motorbike I mean, pillion where you had to get in well in in the kind of wallace and gromit scenario he would sidecar <laughs> yeah i'm gromit for sure um <laughs> what is he like i mean i can see how his public persona puts a lot of people off but i think he's a, he's obviously a very bright person kind of working with him sometimes is like playing chess with a sort of grandmaster he can sort of see so many moves ahead and actually he does have this sort of cassandra like ability to predict things way in advance that are quite unfashionable that no one particularly wants to listen to at the time ai is a great example i guess what is so challenging is he's he's just so clear about how things should happen and how things can be done and how systems can be improved that doesn't necessarily leave a lot of room for people who are kind of fallible and flawed yeah. <laughs> and not everyone has a PhD in computer science, yes. unfortunately. And, and it's a grey area of politics. It's not always an absolute absolute truth on things, is it? That's part of the problem. And I think it also is just, a, it's a really difficult marrying together of people and personalities with policy and data and lots of things he is interested in and you know i think most particularly obviously mps get in the way but they're an important (laughs) part of our democratic process but he was always i mean he was always really great and supportive and loyal to me but you know that's often the way and i think one thing is that is clear is that you know perhaps boris didn't have a huge amount of direction but he's obviously able to communicate with people and connect with people Dom is incredibly strategic. He had, you know, that 2019 run up to the general election with prorogation, all of it. You were in it, there. You're in the room. That well, time. I mean, there you are. That, that you had the grandmaster playing his chess, and then you had the spokesperson kind of nailing the messaging, and like they were a formidable team. Has he got anything to offer to the party going forward? Is, is he? Is he the, the government? The Tories? Has he left? Honestly, you'll have to ask him, but it's probably a middle finger. I don't know. (laughs) Um, I I don't think he's a party person. If we're talking about being of the Conservative Party, I don't I don't think that's for him. But I think that it's you know people I kind of speak to often read his blogs and so on because it is quite thought provoking. Makes you think. Makes you think. I wouldn't say they're necessarily fans, but they're interested in what he's saying, and that's always quite important. And the, the blob is the, is the conversation on uh, this week because the blob is meant to be trying to get Boris Johnson by two more complaints to the different police forces about alleged rule-breaking during COVID. Is the blob a thing? Did you experience the blob? Were you in it? Were you of it? I mean... Is it nonsense? If you're working in Downing Street, you do work with the best civil servants in the country. Like, there's just no getting around it. And I thought they would absolutely amazing all of them but you know I have not worked in a department and my understanding is it's it's pretty varied the kind of culture that you're working with and how proactive people are feeling in my experience though the idea of this blob it, it it's less a blob and it's more like a kind of super tanker those huge kind of oil tankers and if you can set a course and be consistent and clear and sort of kind of put the blinkers on and this is the direction we're going in then the the tanker changes course and um, it takes determination though nothing would make me feel blobbier I guess than not being quite clear what the plan is I suppose yes and that's often the way and you need some clear direction from the top and there's been a lot of change for for the poor old blobsters the last couple of years yes the poor blobsters <laughs> is dominic cummings in your book is he is, is a dom is there a um i don't know dominic collins in the book? 
Daniel Cummings. In the uh, book. I haven't uh, read through yeah. the end yet. You see, <laughs> no, there's some speculation that there's a character based on him, but but which um, one? But there, there is. I don't think you've come up against it yet. But <laughs> okay. it's it's definitely not the case. But who can say whether whether he won't get a bit of an airing in the second one? I'm going to ask you some 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 something about the current news. Do you think Boris Johnson broke COVID rules at Checkers? I really don't know. The thing that does strike me is it's now a year on since the Sue Gray report came out. And for those kind of families who are still grieving people that they've lost and for any workers and frontline staff, they they must have felt they kind of had answers a year ago. And it must be so frustrating to sort of see it all happening again. And I, I think what is especially challenging with this is you know, the, the Privileges Committee have got to get on and do their thing, but the COVID inquiry is really important. And for those amazing civil servants in Number 10 that I was talking about, the kind of work they were actually doing was unbelievable. It was harrowing stuff. You know, we were looking at sites for mass graves and renting ice rinks for potential morgues. And particularly early on, before we kind of had that dashboard data, they were ringing up individual hospitals to find out how many people had died that day and how many cases they had. Like, And that's aside from trying to work out what to do about women going into hospital to give birth alone and that kind of thing. And I think that they don't get the opportunity I have, say, to, to try and kind of explain myself a little bit, but they must feel like their time in Downing Street during the COVID period is defined by Partygate at the moment. And the inquiry hopefully gets into a bit more why wasn't the country better prepared and what were people actually doing in there and what could have been done better. Were you at any parties in Partygate? I was. I was at one. Were you fined by the cops? Yeah, I was fined. Um, It's obviously very embarrassing and regretful and I wish I could take it all back and I feel very apologetic about it. But yeah, I was at one... I mean, you're all working together in a very small space and you're trying to beat a common enemy, weren't you? And when you got, when you, these little wins, you can understand maybe why it was needed to sort of relax at some point. Or is that, is that missed in the conversation? I don't think it was a relaxing point so much, but I do think the, the lines get blurred when you're working, particularly, you've obviously been in Downing Street. It's a series of old townhouses bashed together. It is not great. Small for, corridors. Exactly. It's not great for good spacing. It's not brilliantly ventilated. And as hard as we tried, you know, we were doing lots of testing. Obviously, once the vaccines kicked in, that was happening too. But as much as people tried to be as COVID compliant as possible, you're also trying to run the country and people kind of brush up against each other, essentially. Um, quite hard if you're Matt Hancock. And I think that therefore some of the kind of psychology gets blurred a little bit of, of kind of what's appropriate and what isn't. Do you think we misunderstand politicians? Do you think we disregard that most of them are aiming towards a higher goal? There is a degree of public service behind it. And you, you have it in you too. You did it. You're doing it to help the country, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, this is actually something I, I try and get into quite carefully in this book, is that obviously there's, there's plenty of kind of satire about these larger-than-life existing politicians, largely men, I'm afraid, that I write about in there. But I have these young women characters who are the sort of perfect protagonists and sort of signify a lot of these really good politicians that are around and you have to see their next chapter to see you know whether they progress into that field but there are really serious public servants around they're hard-working and diligent and truthfully and and i'm sure you'll agree with this as a journalist it's the baddies that are more fun to write about (laughs) 
<laughs> so Cleo Watson, the book is described as 50 Chairs of Grey meets House of Cards. Is it the case then that there's a lot of sex happening in, with Westerners that we don't see much? Obviously, there's plenty that we do know about. Yes. But I think what I, what I really wanted to highlight with, was that there's opportunity for it to happen. For example, there's this particular scene at Chequers when the sort of beleaguered Prime Minister invites all her MPs to come for a kind of barbecue and to partly get them away from everybody. There's no phone signal, so people like Chris Hope can't bring them up and find (laughs) out what's going on. And she's there doing a a very serious speech and then upstairs there's, there's a couple in flagrante and what occurred to me is that you know i have been to checkers a couple of times and mps do get invited and there is essentially ample opportunity for this kind of stuff to happen and the sort of juxtaposition obviously of being there with theresa may when she was trying to get her <laughs> brexit deal over the line <laughs> yeah. and the idea of this these people sort of yeah. running off upstairs away from their families with work colleagues country house exactly. a bit giddy on the on the yeah, on, yeah, on the on the elderflower cordial and, <laughs> and 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 parliament's like that too it's yeah. you know it's full of little nooks and crannies and i'm sure like lots of other industries you, you don't quite know what lies underneath well, on that note, Cleo Watson, author of Whips, out this week. I can fully recommend it. It cost uh, £20, 20 pounds from all good bookshops. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Well, that's all for this week's Chopper's Politics Podcast listeners. Thank you to my guests this week, Liam Byrne, MP, Alp Mehmet and Cleo Watson. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells, Giles Gear, and Andy Watson, without whom, well, I'd just be talking to myself in an empty pub. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. I really appreciate it. For more insights into the wonderful world of Westminster, please do sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. It arrives straight in your email inbox every weekday, and the link for that will be in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to read my weekly Peterborough Diary gossip column out every Friday online at 7pm and in Saturday's copy of the Daily Telegraph. And as always, I please, I beg you, I implore you, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph if and where you can. I know you won't regret it. Until next time, though, from here in the Red Lion pub, cheerio. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y dot And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.